Welcome to the Grove Community Church Worship Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. Here's this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. So guys, I gotta say, this has not been a good week if you're a football fan, right? College football, and I just lost about half, the, uh, uh, half of you in the room. Uh, some of you watching on here, you're like, yeah, I don't care about, about football. But, but for a lot of people in this area, college football is a big deal. And I think we're seeing that, uh, that we, there's, there's a small chance that we will have college football right now. It looks like we're, we're going that way. I, I, if you don't know, uh, at least two of the major uh, conferences in the United States have said we are not playing football outside of our conference. Uh, and then the, uh, the SEC commissioner over all the athletics in the Southeastern Conference, which if you're an Auburn fan, an LSU fan, an Alabama fan, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, we have all of those in our congregation, by the way, and more. Uh, if you're a fan of any of those schools, uh, uh, Sankey said just yesterday, it's not looking good at all for, uh, for college football. And I'm just like, man, I, it's just kind of sad. Although it's going to free up a lot of your weekends. So, you know, that's a good thing, right? So your Saturdays are now free over, over the fall. But as I was thinking about that this week, I thought about my football days. Um, I don't know, did, did anybody in here play football back in the 80s? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, 90s? No? All right. So, okay. Well, <laughs> I just, that's beyond, I don't know about this. Any, any 60s or 70s? Okay. All right. Okay. All righty. So we got a few of you guys in here. So when I was playing football, there's this thing that you never see anymore. It's been replaced with big placards and wristbands. But when I played football back in the day, we did this thing called a huddle. H-U-D-D-L-E. Now, you couldn't do a huddle in our environment today because there is no social distancing and huddling. I mean, you are, you are all 11 people on the same team in a space that it's about like this, and you got massive, sweaty, nasty bodies in that huddle, and they would stink, right? And as an offensive lineman, I was a tight end, I always got stuck with the linemen, which means I always was next to the guys that were in the trenches getting dirty. And I guess, I guess running backs get kind of dirty because they're getting tackled all the time. But, but the guys in the trenches, all of us were sweaty and dirty, and, and we, were, we were pushing those big bodies hard and, and trying to, you know, trying to move, move people out of the way. And I thought about how the huddle is something that's just kind of gone away and how it's kind of gone away in our culture altogether. We've lost this sense of community. We've lost this sense of togetherness. We've lost this sense of purpose and mission. Here's what would happen in a huddle. You would get back into the huddle, and for about the first three seconds to ten seconds, you were reaming the guy who made the mistake on the last play, right? You would get in the huddle, and you're like, dude, you're killing me here. You have got to pick up your weight, man. What were you thinking? What did you see there? And then you'd correct them, and then you go on, okay. Then the guy would come in with the play, relay the play to everybody, 
And then this is where the linemen would take over with one another. And the linemen would say something to this effect, and I'll explain it in a second. Okay, last time he, he, he lined up in a four technique, but he, then he bounced out to a seven technique. So as the tight end, if he bounces out to a seven technique, you come over and help me out and we'll combo black this guy, right? Or if he's in a four technique and he slides to a five, then I will chip block him, but you're going to have him because i got to get to the next level to seal block the, t- the, the, the um, linebacker. So that was the kind of thing that would go on in a huddle. And you would explain that to one another, and you'd, you'd have an, a concept of what was going on in the next play. Now, back when I played, almost every play was a running play, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So if you're, if you're an old offensive lineman, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So for those of you that don't know, what I just said is, if the defensive player lines up over the tackle, directly over the tackle, then, then the tackle's responsible for that person. But if he lines up just to the outside shoulder of the tackle, then I'm going to chip block. That means I'm going to come, I'm going to hit block him with you, and then I'm going to slide up and try to block the tight end. I mean the linebacker, so the running back can come behind me. If he lines up in a five technique, then I'm going to I'm going to come in or chip block him. If he lines up in a seven t- technique, then I can't take that tackle on that defensive ta- uh, tackle on myself or defensive end on myself. So I'm going to hit him, and you got to come and help me. So all of that was explained in just a few words in a huddle. And if I've lost you, don't worry about it. The point is this. The huddle was, was extremely important for communicating and understanding the movement and the mission of the next play. With the call of the play, and I've said this before, you knew what everybody on that team was supposed to do. All 11 men, and it was men, all 11 men or boys at the same time doing what they're supposed to do. And if you don't have that huddle, you miss out on it. And that's why football today is a little weird. They hold up a placard and everybody looks at it and they look at their wristbands to see what the play number is and then they do what they're, they're supposed to do on that play. However, there's no communication like there used to be. I think the huddle is a perfect picture for what prayer is all about and what community is supposed to be all about. And we seem to, in our busyness, lose the importance of prayer and lose the importance of community. When's the last time you seriously got down and dirty in the trenches in prayer? When's the last time you got down and dirty and serious in in community with other people? And here's the sad thing. Right now in our culture, both prayer and community has been kind of pushed to the edges. So today we're going to look at this passage from Jesus' life and his ministry as we continue to ask the question, Jesus teaches to pray. That's what this whole series is about. It's about, Lord, we want to learn from you how to pray. And so we're looking at how Jesus taught And how he lived out prayer in his life. And so we come to Luke 9. I told you last week that we were going to stay a couple of weeks in Luke 9 beyond last week. Last week we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And the next little pericope, the next little piece of scripture after that is the confession of Jesus by Peter. And then it's Jesus, his first foretelling of his death in the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 9, verses 18 through 22 is what we're going to look at. You can follow on the screen, or as I'm doing, on a smart device, okay? Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. 
I want to stop here. This is a huge twist and turn in how Luke tells any story in his gospel. Up until this point, and really moving beyond this point, every time Luke goes into a story, he gives you a setting and a background. Last week, we talked about the setting and the background. It was the group of the disciples, and they were on their way to Bethesda, or Bethesda, depending on how you want to pronounce it, and they were out in the middle of the wilderness. They hadn't gotten there yet, and then the setting was between day and night, and I went into great detail on why that mattered last week. This week we get to this passage and he gives us none of the setting. He doesn't tell us anything about where he was or or when he was. Luke just says, now it happened. And what's funny about that phrase is it wasn't just a happenstance. It was extremely purposeful and intentional. If you read that, you might think, oh, I just happened into this deep conversation and prayer with God and fellow believers. That's not what this was. And the reason why Luke words it like that is because he's giving us a whole new way to understand setting. It has nothing to do with place or time. It has everything to do with what's about to happen. Now it happened, and what's the setting here? There's only one thing we're told about the setting. He was praying. So Luke, who goes into great detail about setting over and over and over again, sets up this story with one point of setting. Jesus was praying. Now it's tricky because he says he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. We don't have time to dive into why he did that or, or what he could have meant by that. But the idea is that Jesus was entering into this time of prayer and his disciples were with him. He was the one praying, but they were there with him. And then he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the expected one. You're the one that's coming to save. That's who you are. Now, just in verses ahead of this, the ones we looked at last week, the disciples didn't know that he could bless the bread and break it and feed 5,000. The disciples kind of wholly missed what Jesus was about and doing. He said, give them food. And they said, what are you talking about, Jesus? We don't have food. How are we going to feed all these people? Are you crazy? And they failed this test. They have failed the test of Jesus and trusting that God was going to do something big. And so that we go straight from this, this weak sauce disciple to now all of a sudden him being able to, to utter some of the most profound words in human history. You are the Christ of God. So how do we go from, uh, Jesus, I don't know what to do all this people, and how are you going to do it? We've only got five loaves and two fish. What in the world are you talking about? To, I believe that you are the Christ of God. How does that happen? Better question, what's the one thing that Luke says between the last scene and this scene? What's the setting? Say it out loud. What's the setting? 
Jesus was praying, and they were praying together. The only thing, the only step between them utterly misunderstanding the power of God in Jesus and understanding that he is the Christ of God is prayer. It's the one thing that stands between. And that's why Luke develops this passage this way. Over and over and over again throughout the work of Luke, we see Jesus and his disciples entering into prayer and prayer radically changing everything. And Luke doesn't want us to miss this. When we would gather in a huddle for football team, you would step 10 yards back from the ball. They'd place the ball. You'd step 10 yards back. And in our huddle, all the linemen would hold hands, shoulder to shoulder. And then you would have the wide receivers, the running back, and the fullback. And then you would have the, uh, uh, and then you would have the quarterback. And we'd all be in a huddle. We'd all be in this tight place. And we'd be literally holding hands. And that's the picture here of Jesus gathering with his disciples in this holy huddle of gathering together and praying. And it's out of the fruit of that that Peter then says, you are the Christ. Peter wasn't smart enough to get this on his own. The only thing that explains it is the power of prayer. That in this time of intense prayer with his disciples, when they were alone and quiet, God revealed the truth. You are the Christ. Verse 21, and he, he being Jesus, strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the first time that Jesus makes this clear in Luke, that his whole reason for coming was going to end with death and resurrection. It's the first time. And again, what's the setting? What has just happened? What did Jesus do? He prayed. You see, in prayer, there is this mission clarity. It becomes extremely clear on who God is and what he's calling us to do. Prayer is the channel through which the power, the clarity, the mission of God flows to us. And it was the same way with Jesus. And it was the same way with the disciples. And by extension, it's the same way with us. If we want clarity of purpose and mission, it's got to be prayer. Prayer also ends doubt in our life. Let me say that again. We have a culture, by the way, that's full of throwing doubt your way. And that's okay. Because God is illogical. If he was logical, he wouldn't be God. Now, there is a divine logic that's way beyond anything that we can grasp and understand. And so God's logic is on a whole different level. And we have a culture that likes to ignore God. Heck, let's own it. Christians all over the United States ignore God on a daily basis. We are all guilty of it. And when we separate ourselves in that way, doubt creeps in. 
Now, let me say this. I don't think you can have deep faith until you've lived through some doubt. And that's okay. I'm not saying that doubting God's power or doubting God in any way is always a horrible bad thing. I grew up hearing people say, not my parents, but hearing people say things like, oh, never question God. Well, Jesus got that wrong. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that sounds like a big question to me. You don't think that there was doubt that creeped in in Jesus in those moments at the cross? I mean, he was clear on his mission, but there was human, there was human fear and doubt in there. I don't know the depths of it. I, I, we don't know the depths of it. My point is this. We live in a culture that's going to raise and create doubts in your life. And that's just part of being human. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing. But where do our doubts get erased? Where do we reconnect? Where is the place, what is the setting where we stand firm on God and we reconnect with him in powerful ways and we sense him in new ways and we know without a doubt? And it's in prayer. So when doubt creeps in in your life over even the existence of God, when doubt creeps in over, over your worth or your well-being, when doubt creeps in in any way, if, if, if there's, a, if there's a, um, a distraction that sends you on a tangent, whatever it is, when, when that doubt creeps in, prayer is the place where God begins to bring clarity and erases doubt. The doubt, the doubt, that the disciples had was erased in prayer. The mission of going to the cross and dying and being raised again became clear in prayer. And I would go on to say the strength to carry through with the will of God came through the power of prayer. Prayer gives us clarity. It erases doubt. It gives us purpose and mission. It realigns us with our purpose. Have you ever driven a car out of alignment? It's where the wheels are kind of cattywampus. For some reason, probably you hit a curb, just saying. You probably ran over something. And when your car gets out of alignment, your steering wheel is off a little bit, and you kind of drive like this. And that ends up messing up the tire treads. It ends up messing up your transmission. I mean, there's a lot that can go wrong with that. Peter could probably tell you everything that would go wrong with that. But when something's out of alignment, it just doesn't run efficiently and well and in the direction it's supposed to be. Prayer aligns us. It gets all the wheels heading in the right direction. Prayer is like that huddle in football where you come back and you go, okay, sorry guys, I blew it. And by the way, I had to say that a lot in, in, in the huddle. I had to say oftentimes, hey, was she waving at me? Oh, I thought she was waving at me. I'm sorry. The huddle is where you came back and you said, I had to say it all the time, guys, I'm sorry, I blew that. I, I just totally missed, I totally missed my block there. I'm sorry. It was a time, it was a place of confession. Just, man, I blew it. I'm sorry. It was also the place where I got corrected. You know, I came back and if I didn't say anything, they would say, dude, you're killing me. You got to do that better. 
It was a place of accountability. The huddle was the place where we could talk it out. And if someone didn't know the play, which, by the way, happened all the time, too, you would get in the huddle, and someone would, they would, record, they would say the play, and then someone would go, um, what am I supposed to do on that? And you could tell them. The huddle was a safe place. It was the place where you got your, your marching orders. It was the place where, you've, where you were corrected. It was the place where you got clarity on the mission of the next play. And that's very much what prayer does for us. It holds us accountable. It gives us clarity and purpose and reason. And it shows us what to do. And so Jesus, in this most important part of his life, this is kind of the, um, the beginning of, uh, of, of the rest of the story for Jesus. It's the beginning point where we really start to get down and dirty in the book of Luke about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And it starts with prayer. That's the only setting that Luke gives us for a reason. The only way that we can stand firmly and say, you are the Christ. The only way that we can stand firmly and say, this is where you're leading me. The only way that we can stand firmly and say, God, here's all of me, is when we do this in prayer. Guys, we have to develop a strong prayer life that erases doubt and gives clarity of mission. And then emboldens us and strengthens us for said mission. Brokenness like the huddle is where we can come and say, I have no clue what I'm doing. Help. It's where we come back and say, God, I blew it. Help. It's where we can come back and say, teammates, I need your back. I gotta have, you got to have my back. I need your help. It's the place where the leaders step up and say, this is what we got to do. I remember not the whole scene, not the whole story of the game, but I remember one game being in the huddle, and we just had to get a first down. That was all that we had to do, and we were going to win the game because we could run out the clock. And I remember getting in the huddle and saying, guys, all that you have for the next two yards, that's it. Give me six feet of effort here. Just six feet of effort It's going to take three seconds. That's it. That's all we need. And there's something about the huddle that emboldens you and empowers you, even in the fourth quarter where you're drained and tired and don't have anything else to give that gives you that last bit to accomplish. That's what prayer does. So when's the last time you've been in a huddle with God? I hope this message was meaningful and powerful to you, but I also hope that it was challenging. And as always, don't just hear it, put it into action. Until next week, have a great one.